Romans 13, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter number 13. And I appreciate you coming here tonight. I know when he started at 5 o'clock, I thought, oh boy, here we are. But they have uh, trickled in. I'm so glad you're here. And I know we have some via live stream. I've kind of gotten used to preaching to a camera since we had to do that for a few months. Though that is a whole lot better to preach to live living people. And uh, so I'm glad you're here tonight. And I do trust that God will uh, stir our hearts here. Of course, um, uh, we uh, tonight uh, started an hour earlier. That's why I refer to the fact uh, as folks... Um, uh, appreciate you getting here an hour earlier, and we do trust that the uh, Lord will give us some special time together in prayer as He leads here when we finish just a few minutes here in preaching. Just a few minutes is kind of a figure of speech. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll go, go to that way in just a moment. I do want to say something very uh, just quickly here at the beginning. I was uh, quite a bit surprised on uh, my birthday with uh, the birthday video and the birthday card, and I, some of you wrote notes in the card, and others of you were participated in the video. And I just want to say thank you for your time. Uh, your notes and uh, expressions on the video were a great encouragement. I will say I was embarrassed, but beyond that, uh, I guess that's what's supposed to happen on a birthday. If you don't embarrass somebody, you didn't do your job. But uh, some of us, that's easier to do than others. But, um, uh, but anyway, I really did appreciate the, the kind, helpful, heartfelt words that many of you gave either on print or uh, verbally. And just want to say thank you as a group since um, uh, it would be difficult to go around and thank everyone for, your, uh, for being a part of that. And, uh, but it was, uh, but it was a, a memorable time, no doubt about it. Now, I've just decided since I've hit 60, I'm going to act like I'm in my 50s. Is that okay? I'm just going to act that way like we didn't hit that milestone because uh, i got too much to do left. There's way too much to do. And uh, so we'll just uh, pretend we got a little more time on the deal. But, uh, but anyway, tonight, I uh, wanted us to kind of start. I don't know how the Lord will lead in the meeting. I have not really planned out a lot of messages, but I did sense the Lord wanted us to deal with this particular uh, Scripture passage in light of what we did in Sunday school. Now, I know some of you were not able to be there for that presentation and just give you a brief rundown and really won't say a lot more about it except to say that we dealt with the issue of the co-infections dealing with the issue of moral impurity. And I pointed out in the journey that I've been in on for a couple of years, uh, in those early... Um, about a, uh, two years ago when we had the New Life meetings, there was truth that was exploding about strongholds and about some of the accompanying issues and about the unbiblical mindsets that people get because of not processing difficulties in childhood and in their home. And, and it just exploded across, began to preach that. People began to be helped by it. And in that journey, I, I knew that everything was right that we were talking about, but I felt there's something I'm missing. And I wasn't exactly sure what it was. And uh, really what it was is a simple truth, and it's found in the book of James. It says, every man when he is tempted, did you catch that? Every man is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. And I began to recognize that the core issue that helps everything else work is when you take responsibility for the very first thing that got you into trouble, and that is your own wrong desires. Or could we put it in one word? Selfishness. So let's walk through a passage of Scripture that is literally brutal when it comes to dealing with that particular subject. The word self or selfishness is not mentioned, but clearly it's a reference to that particular uh, fleshly dynamic that we see throughout the passage. And I'd like to walk through that passage tonight, and I'm just going to uh, kind of warn you ahead of time the passage is kind of rough. There are certain passages that are just rough. And God intended them to be that way because they confront us. And in doing so, many times we're confronted with things that we don't want to either admit or don't really want to deal with or maybe don't even see. And I, I know it's uh, particularly when there has been wrong 
uh, responses over the years. And we kind of just kind of say, well, that's, that's my wife's problem or that's so-and-so's problem. And we don't deal with our own issues and we continue to have problems. And so uh, Romans chapter number 13 deals, starts with dealing with the subject of love. Now let me just give you a context for uh, the, the, the passage and we'll read the passage and then we'll begin the message here. And of course the book of Romans, many of you know, uh, is a book, uh, different people have kind of used different words. Sometimes the word gospel is used for its theme. I particularly we may prefer the word righteousness would be the word. And the very first part of the book, uh, very clearly the Apostle Paul wants the whole world to see that everybody's unrighteous. If you're Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, all have sinned. Everybody is unrighteous. You see that clearly in the first few chapters. And then you get into chapter 4 or 5, I'm really broad brushing, uh, big time on the fly over here. Then you get into justification, which of course is a wonderful truth that although we're sinners, uh, there's the wonderful truth that we can be justified, made righteous, declared to be righteous in the sight of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, moving into 6, uh, 7, and 8, he answers the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he pointed out that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound there at the end of chapter number 5 as it comes dealing with this wonderful salvation we have. And he answers that question and begins to deal in 6, 7, and 8 with the topic of sanctification, which is practical boots on the ground righteousness. So you've got unrighteousness, positional righteousness, practical righteousness, sense of sanctification, and then, of course, I won't go into 9, 10, and 11 because that's the tough chapters, okay? And that's where the theologians sometimes like to go. But I can give you my evangelist rendition of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Can I do that? Because we evangelists like to cut to the chase. Romans chapter 9 teaches us the sovereignty of God. Romans chapter 10, the human responsibility. And Romans chapter 11, his ways are past finding out. There it is. We've solved the problem. Okay, now we move into chapter number 12. And uh, you get into boots on the ground. What does sanctification look like? Wonderful verses of Scripture right here at the beginning here, chapter 12, now into verse 13. He's going to address this wonderful subject of love. Now, let's read the text, and then we'll get into the, the text here, uh, and the message. Look at verse number 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I want us to start off, obviously, he's helping us understand love, but he's actually making a contrast to obviously that which would not be love. Because if you break the Ten Commandments or any of those, the second half of the Decalogue, if you break those commandments, it's clearly, it's not love, it's the opposite, what we might call selfishness. I think we call love selflessness, and we could say the opposite is selfishness. And he clearly helps us understand. So just a few things quickly to kind of set the passage up. Now, before we begin, help us, to help us understand, love is an interesting word in English. Now, it's a little different in the Greek, but in English it's different because we really use it. Uh, you've heard, I think, different illustrations about this. But if, 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 if you say that you love chicken, you know what you do? You eat it. <laughs> That's kind of strange, isn't it? But uh, if you say you love your wife, you don't eat her, okay? See, it's just a strange language, isn't it? La, uh, English is, and we use love different ways. And one can't, really the truth is, if you love chicken, you don't love the chicken, you love yourself. Now, hopefully if you love your wife, that means you love your wife. But the word love is one of those words that even in our culture is misused all the time. There are times people living in sin say, well, we're doing it because we love each other. 
Well, the truth is that's not true. You know why? Because the Bible says it's not. You'll see that here in a moment. But let's begin to work through it. Uh, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, in verse number 9, it makes it clear. We're going to walk through the Ten Commandments and show you how clearly that if you love somebody, you won't break these ten. You won't break them. Okay, so first of all, thou shalt not commit adultery. When a man commits adultery, he doesn't love the person he's with, and he doesn't love his wife, certainly, and he doesn't love his future wife if, he is, if he's not married. He loves himself. See, God makes it very clearly, if somebody commits adultery, it is not love. It's the opposite of love. You're breaking the law. You're not fulfilling the law, and it's because of selfishness. So, you give me two unmarried people who are living together and say, we're doing that because we love each other. They're lying. They don't love each other. They love themselves. When people get into sexual perversions that the Bible condemns, and they say, well, we do it because we love, that's not true. The Bible makes it clear it's not true. You see, the world calls that love, but God doesn't. He said, no, no. Love fulfills the law. Anybody who breaks the law in the name of love has got the wrong definition of love. Because love always does it God's way. So, as we're going to go down through it, I want us to see this because it's important for us to see where God's coming from here because our world tries to throw. They throw, you know, like love wins. You see that all the time, at least back a few years ago when those issues were prevalent. Love wins. And my point would be, if they're talking about something the Bible condemns, it's not love and it doesn't win. See? So, that's what the passage is helping us see. Uh, then it says, thou shalt not kill. That's pretty obvious. I think if you killed somebody, you wouldn't love them. What do you think? We won't... We won't really talk about that. If it was a few months into the school year, I'd preach on a little bit hotter, harder since some of the college students might be plotting that for their roommates. But uh, about that time, right now they love them. But, uh, uh, but anyway, I'm speaking in jest. But nonetheless, uh, then it goes on to the next one. It's thou shalt not kill, and do thou shalt not steal. I say this to teenagers occasionally. You know, if you come into your mom's bedroom and mom and dad's bedroom and they're not around, take some change out of your mom's purse or take a couple bucks out of your dad's wallet, you don't love your parents because you never steal from people you love. And the truth is, when people loot, they don't love the people they're looting from. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> it doesn't work. If you steal from somebody, it's clearly you don't love them. Okay, that's pretty obvious. So if you, uh, if you were to steal from your boss, you don't love your boss. Then it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. It's like this, if you love somebody, you don't lie to them. So a husband doesn't lie to his wife, a wife doesn't lie to the husband, and children don't lie to their parents. See, when so, you love somebody, you're not going to lie to them. You're not going to tell them something that's not true. And that's why many times, uh, I think one of the things that was so dangerous about what we talked about this morning and the issue of the addictive cloak is in order to have addictive cloak, you have to be deceptive, and that's what lying is. See, if there's, if there's a man out here right now who's looking at pornography and you're, you, you come to bed and maybe your wife went to bed early and you come to bed and she rolls over and says, what were you doing? And you were looking at garbage down in the den on the computer. And you don't tell her the truth, you don't love your wife. Because if you loved your wife, you tell her the truth. See, that's what it says. Because it says if you fulfill the law, you're going you're to love one another. And, and it, it, then it, it moves, then thou shalt not covet. Could I put it this way? is if you love somebody, you're not jealous of them. You don't covet. It's not like you're glad that everything good happened to them is happening to them. Now, all of us as parents, I hopefully get that. Because, you know, I had wonderful opportunity, wonderful childhood, wonderful growing up, but it was a different day. The 1960s were different than they are now. I mean, our country was not as prosperous when I was growing up like it is now. 
And I will say that my daughters have had opportunities and have had training and have had done things and have experiences that I never had as a kid. And you know what? I'm not jealous of them. I'm glad they have them. You know why? Because I love them. And every parent out here gets that. You love to give your kids things that you didn't get, don't you? Experiences, sometimes even things and sometimes food items. I mean, we were growing up, we didn't go out to eat hardly at all. Unless, you know, you got to go home with dad after church. Every once in a while, you get lucky, you'd stop by McDonald's. Okay. But I was pretty, you know, that wasn't happening all the time. Well, it was a different day back then. Now, my point is simply this. If you love somebody, you're not going to be jealous and you're not going to be covet what uh, good things that happen to them. Okay, this is obvious stuff. But let's look then at verse number 10 because we're walking quickly through it. He said, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Which simply means somebody that you love, you would never do anything to hurt them knowingly. You never say anything. You never do anything. And that would simply mean, friends, because we're obviously have dealt a little bit in the context of the moral issues here, that a man who loves his husband would, uh, a man who loves his wife, excuse me, that husband, I'll get it right, that uh, turning 60 can really mess with your brain. Okay, but anyway, uh, we'll get it right. Okay, uh, a man who loves his wife as a husband will never do anything that he knows will hurt her. There's not a woman in this room who knows that if your husband's looking at filth, that won't hurt you. So it's important, men, to realize when you're looking at filth, you don't love your wife, you love yourself. And that's the core issue, as we talked about this morning. Selfishness is the core issue that fuels the whole arena of moral impurity decision. And any man, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm trying to help you. Because there's nothing better in all the world than to get before God and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. It's always good to do that. Anytime a man in this room has looked at pornography, I'm telling you right now that you loved yourself and you did not love your wife and really in a certain sense you didn't even love your wife, your kids. It was all about you. See, it's important for us to understand that's what God's saying because love never would do anything that would work ill to your neighbor. You're not going to do anything to hurt some people you love. You're not going to do that. That's why we keep the Ten Commandments is because we love. You love your neighbor like yourself, you're going to keep them. It's, that's what it is. And again, we're talking love here is obviously something that is a divine dynamic. It's a supernatural dynamic. The fruit of the Spirit, help me out now, is love. So we're talking about something that God must supernaturally enable. He must supernaturally work because we are by nature selfish. And if we don't have that divine spirit enablement to do it, we're going to end up defaulting to the flesh, which is always, it's all about us. So what God is trying to help, he's trying to help us understand is love is always that which would never hurt somebody else. You'll take the hit before somebody else will. I uh, think growing up, remember my dad said something one time, I think I've shared this before, but uh, that really deeply stirred me because it, he was just, it was just one of those moments where he was just kind of reminiscing without really thinking about it, he wasn't patting himself on the back. But he talked about the fact my dad had congestive heart failure. And if I was my dad at this point, my health would already be in pretty bad shape. And uh, my dad uh, struggled with congestive heart failure at least in the last 15 years, probably before that. And I remember one day he was just musing in the last years of his life. He says, you know what I think happened? He said, back when we were in Durango, Colorado, he said, anytime you kids would get a sore throat, he said, I was concerned it was going to be scarlet fever that was big up in Durango, Colorado. And 
rheumatic fever. He said, I was afraid uh, that that was going to, because you know, if you don't deal with it, that, it, it hurts your heart. It damages your heart. So he said, I always would take you kids to the doctor. I would always get you antibiotic because I wanted to make sure that you did not have something that would destroy or, or damage your heart. I didn't want that to happen. He said, however, he said, we didn't have a lot of money back then. So when I got a sore throat, he said, I didn't do anything. I saved the money for you kids. And he said, you know what I think happened? He was just musing. Yeah, he wasn't patting himself on the back. He said, you know what I think? I think I got a mild case of rheumatic fever. I think it damaged my heart. He said, I think that's what happened. Now, I don't know if that happened or not. We don't, don't have proof of that. But I will tell you, there's not a parent in this room who has any kind of love for your kids that doesn't understand that. It's not a parent in this room who came between you getting an antibiotic or your kid. There's not a one of us in this room that would not, without even thinking, give it to our children. See, that's the idea of love. Sacrificial. It's not about us. It's about other people. I remember in 1990, uh, excuse me, 1989 when my mom went to heaven. She battled cancer for nine years. In fact, her birthday uh, is, I think is it today? Is it the seventh today? Sixth. It's tomorrow. She died. She died on this day. She went to heaven. We prayed that she would come home by her birthday and God answered the prayer. Not the way we thought. She went to heaven before her 65th birthday, which would be tomorrow. I was just, I didn't look at the dates there. But um, I remember when my mom passed away in 1989, I can still see my dad sobbing. And I remember him saying, Jim, I want to go home and be with your mother. But I can't. And I'll never forget his words. You kids still need me. That still brings tears to my eyes. And every parent in this room gets it. See, that's what God's talking about, love. Love's all about, not us. Love is all about the next generation. Love is all about others. Love is all about meeting the needs of God, the ones God's brought into our life. That's what love is. So here's the tragedy. Do we live in a world where people are selfish when they should be selfless to people that are in their family? The answer is all the time. Every time a father leaves a family, I'm telling you right now, that is because he is selfish. Every time a man uh, commits adultery and thinks he's sneaking it off at work, he is being selfish. It's all because of selfishness. And today we live in a culture that almost fuels selfishness, trying to get people to be selfish instead of doing that which is best for their children or for their wife or for their kids or for whoever. So God's helping us see that. And then, of course, the passage is, it starts off dealing with love versus the opposite of love, which would be selfishness. So selflessness versus selfishness. Then the analogy changes to light versus darkness. So I want you to join me in going to the next part of the passage. And, and really love, of course, would be light. And selfishness would be darkness, clear. You see that. But as we continue to read here, we'll go to the back part of the passage. It says, And that knowing the time, that now is the high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. That's one thing you can be sure of. If you're saved, you're closer to heaven than the day you got saved. Uh, salvation, I believe there's talking about glorification. The night is far spent. Here it is. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And then he's going to urge us on really what I would call three duets, three sin duets. He's going to basically say, you need to get rid of it. Well, here's what I'm talking about. Here is, uh, here is the works of darkness. He's going to give us three duets of the works of darkness. Let us walk honestly as in the day. And he says three ne negatives. Number one, not in rioting and drunkenness. The word rioting is a very interesting word. 
because we hear it a lot today, don't we? Now, there wouldn't be an immediate equivalency to the kind of rioting we'd say today, like if you're watching the news, which, well, you're not going to hear the rioting on the news because they're mostly peaceful protests, okay? But nonetheless, if you do hear the word rioting, there's not quite an equivalent to this word rioting, though there are some similarities. Because the idea of a drunk, a half-drunken processional through the streets uh, at night often with torches, and many times it was there'd be singing along with it, and it would be in, uh, in worship to the god of wine, the god of Bacchus. So they're like drunken parties, but they're like parades, and they're moving, and, and of course uh, there would be some clear equivalency to issues today. So God is simply saying this, people who get drunk are selfish. <laughs> Anybody in this room who uses illegal drugs, you abuse prescription drugs, or use alcohol, what the Bible is simply saying is you are selfish. That's what it says. Because clearly the works of darkness, God says, not in rioting and drunkenness. In other words, you don't try to escape life through using alcohol at that time, that's what they used, or other things today, obviously different equivalencies today. God says that's not how you cope with life, because if you do, it ends up being selfish. You know, I've always thought, I've always thought that somebody ought to do a commercial uh, showing the negative side of alcohol. And I say this with all seriousness, because it's really sobering, but, you know, cars skidding down the road, erratically down the road, you hear the thump. You hear an ambulance come in, you see a child taken to the emergency room, you see the doctor coming out to heartbroken parents, they're saying he didn't make it. Then the next scene, you see a man who's drunk come home, beat his wife while the kids cower in fear. I won't mention the name of the alcohol, but such and such a beer. Everything you always wanted in a beer, and less, much less. That'd be a good commercial, wouldn't it? <laughs> See, that's the point. You know, to be honest with you, I remember when I was in Bible college, I began to hear that guys were debating the fact that really the Bible's not, the Bible's only against drunkenness, you can socially drink. You know what I've learned? If you never take one sip, you will never get drunk. The only people that get drunk are people who start messing with it. You have to take the first drink. You have to. You cannot get drunk until you take the first drink. And so I'm just simply saying today, we've gotten away from that. And uh, there's all kinds of other issues. Even in a room perhaps like this, there may be some, or on live stream. And all I'm just simply saying, you have to understand when you go to the bottle, and when you go to whatever to escape life, it's selfishness. You don't love your kids. You're not loving your wife. And you're certainly not loving others that are going to interact with you during that time. You're loving yourself. That's the first duet. Then he says, not in chambering and wantonness. I, I love the King James Version, chambering and wantonness. You say, what in the world does that mean? Actually, it's really interesting because the word chambering is a Greek word that we use in English. And most of us wouldn't know that. It's not a word that we use all the time. It's more of a scientific term. But it's really dealing with the idea of sexual, uh, of sexual sin, sexual immorality. That's chambering. And then wantonness is the idea, it's the word that is often translated lasciviousness, and it's the idea of no boundaries. Just totally no boundaries. Do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. So basically, these two words would include everything you can think of. Certainly would include looking at uh, filth. They would include uh, uh, prostitution. They would include affairs. They would include teenagers uh, getting involved before uh, for merit. It would include the whole mess. 
Everything, just everything, all the perversions, everything. So what God is trying to help us see is this. When you turn on the internet to look at filth, it's because you're selfish. That's what God's saying. Uh, if you start to, um, down at the office, start to flirt with that secretary, and you begin to go down the trail that will always end in an affair, it's because you're selfish. You don't love your wife. You don't love your kids. It's because you're selfish. Remember years ago, a young evangelist was preaching, and he said something. I thought, that's good. i got to remember that. He said, buddy, if you take your secretary out to lunch, he says, you're out to lunch. I thought, that's good. <laughs> remember when Mike Pence was mocked and made fun of because he said, I will not be with another woman other than my wife. I won't take any other woman. I will not be with another woman alone other than, if my, uh, other than my wife. And he got mocked. And then Me Too came around. And you know what? Mike Pence has been looking smarter every day. You know what happens if you're not alone with a woman who's not your wife? You know what happens? You cannot be falsely accused, at least credibly. That makes sense, doesn't it? See, the point simply is this. And by the way, young men, those of you training for the ministry, you have to understand you're setting your, your, your parameters now. There is something about getting walls in your life when you're young. If you won't flirt with the girls in college, you won't flirt with the girls when you're the pastor. You see, those are walls. Appropriateness. Now. It begins now, all you Bible college guys. It begins now. So if you're coming to somebody and uh, somebody comes up to you and says, you know what, a little too friendly with the girls, don't get offended. You ought to be glad they actually may be rescuing your ministry 30 years from now. But see, some of you more, I'm not too many kinds, some of you will go the fool route, be the moronic route, and you'll get all bent out of shape and forget the fact that somebody's trying to help you get walls in your life. When you're a pastor, you can't flirt with the girls. Well, you can, but you won't be around long. You'll lose your credibility. Have there been any moral scandals in the evangelical world in the last few decades? Bunches of them. And you young men need to realize you have to get parameters in your life. One of those parameters is simply, I'm not going to be with a woman alone. So in a situation, you have to learn sometimes, head for the exits. You know, you've got to be careful. If it's just a brief encounter, get, out, you know, get, get, get in a public setting as soon as you can. And those are kind of things that you have to determine in your heart. So that we, uh, you don't get in a situation where there's question. So um, that's the idea. Chambering one, it's the whole moral impurity realm. I felt like Song of Solomon is a, is, a great, is a great book, but in the back part of Song, Song of Solomon, it has something for every girl in this room, and every guy can really get this too. Because it says basically that every girl, young girl who's not married, is either a wall or she's a door. And the Bible basically says if she's a door, you're going to have to protect her. But it's a whole lot better to be a wall. See, a wall basically is a young lady who says to the male population, I'm keeping myself for my future husband, so bug off. I like walls. A door doesn't say that. A door is open. A door gives you the idea that, well, maybe I'm not saving everything for my future husband. That's a door. Every girl in this room is either a wall or a door. And you've got to make a determination which you are. And if you are a door, can I tell you this? You are selfish. Because if you were a wall, you'd consider your future husband and you would consider your future kids. And you guys, same way. Are you a wall or a door? Are you open or closed? 
Do you signal to the female population, I'm keeping myself from my future wife? Or do you send other signals out? Now, that's a BCM application, but nonetheless, it's a very real one. And you say, it's like this. Oh, come on, preacher. I'm just being friendly. Now, I'm not against friendliness. You say, well, preacher, what's the difference between flirting and friendliness? And I will tell you, that is the dumbest question on planet Earth. Because everybody who asks that question knows. You know the difference between being friendly and flirting. You know the difference. You ask the question because you're actually trying to provide a cover for your flirtatious spirit. My point simply, friends, is we're living a day, you better make some decisions because some of you guys one day are going to be a moral scandal and I may not be around, pastor may not be around, but some of your contemporaries and they're going to say, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. You are a door and you never got the thing nailed shut. See, so God's simply helping you understand the whole arena of moral impurity comes because of selfishness. You think dirty thoughts and you don't deal with it, don't battle it, you're selfish. You're not, you're not keeping your mind for your future wife. You're selfish. Young lady, you look at soap operas, read provocative romantic novels, you're selfish. You're not considering your future husband. You're actually providing some romantic, maybe no face or maybe a, some face in that there that your husband will never be able to live up to. You're absolutely selfish. See, it's important. You say, well, preacher, I did some of these things growing up. Well, the reason I'm preaching the message is because it always cleans us out when we say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. It always helps you. Say, God, I was wrong when I did that. I was wrong. And you know what happens the moment you agree with God? He forgives you. 1 John 1, 9. It's taken care of. But it's never taken care of as long as you make excuses. It's only taken care of when you say, God, that's what it says. I agree with what you think about that sin. So not a chambering and wantonness is dealing with the real, the whole arena and every aspect of it and things we dealt with at camp. Some of you guys are all included in that. Then he goes to the next one. Hang on, that was rough, but this gets rougher. Not in strife and envying. I will tell you, mom and dad, when you fight in front of the kids, you are as selfish as selfish can be. I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to be dead honest with you. I have been shocked in the last couple of years to find out that moms and dads, Christian that is, actually fight in front of their kids and put each other down in front of the kids. That stunned me. I realize that husbands' wives have disagreements, and I realize they got to go behind closed doors and work things out. I realize that there's issues. I get that, but I cannot imagine the selfishness of putting the laundry out in front of kids that don't even know how to handle it. And yet it happens even in this room. I guarantee you say, preacher, you know anything I don't know? No, I'm just preaching because I'm pretty guaranteed somebody out here probably does. And if not here, at least on live stream, but it's probably both places. Listen, if you say your mother and put her down in front of the kids, that is because you are, sir, you are as selfish as selfish can be, and you need to get on your knees, and you need to repent. It is as wicked as I can think of. It is all about you. If you love that woman and you love those kids, you'd keep it behind closed doors, and you wouldn't put those kids through that kind of disaster. It is as selfish as can be, and there's not a person in this room who does not know I'm telling you the truth because the Bible is. 
And listen, wife, when you put your husband down and throw him into the bus in front of the kids and tell your kids what a bum he is and all the problems he's got, it is one of the most selfish things you can do. It's not about your husband. It's about, not even about the kids. You've made it about you. It is selfish to the core because if you love those kids, you wouldn't do that. You would not throw their dad under the bus, even if everything you said was true. See, we got moms and dads in the same home who have strife and envy. Listen, the Bible makes it clear, only by pride cometh contention. I've learned this about contention. It takes two. It takes two. Have you ever tried to fight yourself? Try to beat yourself up sometime. It's kind of hard. It takes two to have a fight. And that's the point. I realize sometimes you have to work through things and disagreements and different viewpoints and all that kind of, I understand all that. That's part of life and navigating things, but no way should that be in front of the kids. I would hope your kids would never think that mom and dad were having a fight. I hope they would never think that. And, and by the way, I'm just going to say this because it needs to be said. Kids, if you parents fight in front of you, I just want you to know something. It's not right, number one. They need to get right with God. I hope they will. Maybe they won't. But they need to get right. And you need to understand good Christian people who love Jesus don't do that. And one day you don't have to do it either. You can learn by it and don't make that mistake. Don't go down that route. That's what it says, strife. Strife and envying. We already kind of talked by envying by talking about coveting. But these, this duet here, this, this duet of selfishness, three duets of selfishness. Now, if, if you're human and you've got red blood going through your veins, you're probably thinking, wow, some of this applies to me. This is a rough passage. I warned you that it's rough because all of us know deep down our biggest battle is with self. If you're out here saying, preacher, I'm resonating with you. I, I got a big, I got a huge problem with selfishness. I mean, my self-life is big. Okay, let me encourage you. Go out to the bookstore and buy the Calvary Road. If you want, like, if you need this kind of preaching, I can guarantee you the Calvary Road will do it. How many have read the Calvary Road? Okay. Calvary Road, get steel-toed boots on. If you think this message was rough, this ain't nothing compared to Calvary Road. It'll clean you, your clock, and when you're done, I mean, the self will take a huge blow, which is a good thing. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul said, I die, anybody know? I die daily. Daily we got to deal with self. All of us know that. We all have to deal with self. Now, that brings us then to the solution. Now, a lot's been said and a lot more could be said about selfishness. Sometimes I feel like, man, I didn't do it justice. I didn't preach hard enough on it. Because we all understand the great propensity we have toward making selfish decisions. And like I said this morning, I'm going to repeat it because there's some of you that were not here. A woman knows when her husband makes a decision where he puts his interest in, in place uh, in, uh, uh, in the focus, not hers. She knows. And she also knows when he makes a decision that puts her interests in first place, not his. She knows that too. There's not a woman in this room that cannot tell when your husband's being selfish, you know. And I will tell you right now, it's hard on you. And I will tell you, sir, when you're selfish, make selfish decisions that affect your wife and kids, she knows it. And I'm telling you, you need to, you need, you need to deal with it. We all do, because we men know how to be selfish. We know how to meet our needs. We know how to get what we want to get. We know how to do it. 
So we have a, if you're sitting here saying, okay, preacher, that's me. I got some issues. Okay, now we're going to go to the solution. We don't have time to come fully develop it, but I want to develop it enough that you see it. Now this is, this solution that God gives to the selfishness that we all face, the darkness that comes with it, is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. It's stunning in its profundity. It is stunning in its simplicity. It is just stunning. So the very first thing God says here in verse number 14, a verse most of us has memorized, it says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what does that mean? The very first part is theological. It's profound, but it's theological. The second part is far more practical. What does it look like boots on the ground? But notice what he says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many of you know that the stunning thing about this verse is that God's telling us to do something. What you need to do, Christians, he's clearly addressing Christians, you need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then why, could I ask, the same author in Galatians 3.27 writes, for as many as of you have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. So in Galatians chapter 3, he's telling us, hey, listen, folks, if you've been saved, you've been immersed in Jesus Christ, if you've been in union with Jesus, Jesus is in you, you're in Jesus, you, you, you've been immersed into Jesus Christ, you have put on Christ. So why is he telling us, believers, who told us in one book, you've already put on Christ, telling us now to do what he said we've already had done? Why? It's actually, I believe, helpful theologically. So what God is helping us understand is, what is true in position must be appropriated. In other words, friends, if you're saved, you're in Jesus, Jesus is in you. You're in union with Jesus Christ. And why I believe what Romans chapter 13, 14 is saying, live like it. He uses that same dynamic in Galatians 5, for you were sometimes darkness, but now you lighten the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's saying, hey, used to be darkness, now you light, live like it. That's what he's saying here, I believe. You're in union with Jesus. Jesus is in you. You're in Jesus. Hey, start living like it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ because you have. That's the point. It's theological. It's living in the great realities. I'm dead to sin, alive in the Christ, uh, in Christ. It's the great truth. I'm in the exalted Christ at the right hand. It's the great truth. I am complete in Him. I'm filled in Him. And more the list could go on. I'm in union with Jesus Christ. That's the key to overcoming selfishness, is the reality that Jesus Christ is unselfish. Do you know Jesus has never had a selfish moment ever? So union with Jesus is your only hope to overcome self is your only hope. And the Bible makes that clear. Now, time-wise, I'm not going to go through the theological ramifications of that because we all know I literally could preach the rest of the week on but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. I could do that. And I would not exhaust the subject. In fact, the reason I can tell you that is because last year that's what we attempted to do in a whole year. <laughs> Remember discovering who Christ is in you and who you are in Christ and that can't remember exactly how we worded it, but that idea, that's what we're talking about. That union, that baptism. Now, but I want us to focus on the last. It says, and make not provision for the flesh. Now, here comes practical now. Real practical. He's saying, here's how you deal with the flesh. Don't give it an inch. The way you deal with the flesh is to be brutal with it. Galatians 5 says, crucify the flesh. That's active voice, so it's not talking about the position, I am crucified with Christ, that's Galatians 2.20, that's passive, that's positional truth. Galatians 5 is active, it means it's our responsibility to, to crucify the flesh. In other words, don't give it an inch. Don't even let it get off the ground. 
You know how the key to overcoming lustful thoughts? The moment the temptation is there, deal with it. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation's not a sin. Yielding to it is. Was Jesus tempted? And the answer is, in all points like as we are. For every man in this room, and I'm not trying to be inappropriate, Jesus was tempted to lust just like you are. But He didn't yield to it. In fact, the Bible says He's our great high priest. He understands all this. He knows how to help you. It's an amazing thing if you really think about it. It's an amazing thing. So what He's helping us understand right here at this very point is, it is at the moment of temptation that you have to deal brutally with the flesh, brutally with self. Don't give the flesh, self, however you want to package it, don't give it any room at all. Because the moment you do, you've made your decision. And everybody knows when you give the flesh an inch, it takes you a mile. You've heard that phrase, we all have. Somebody had said, sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll always keep you longer than what you want to stay. And it always will cost you more than you want to pay. Boy, those are true words. Like what one preacher said to teenagers years ago, I heard him preaching, I thought it was so good. He said, teenagers, you can choose your sin, you can do that, but you cannot choose the consequences. Every young man in this room, you can choose to look at Phil. You can choose, young lady, to be flirtatious. You can choose to be open. You can choose to, to do things, step over lines and get in situations of temptation. You can choose to do that, but you cannot choose the consequences. That's because the Bible says once you're in the flesh, the flesh is powerful. Once you've given it, you've said yes to it. I've given this illustration before, but it certainly illustrates it. There's a little camp I go to up in, uh, this is the first summer in 15 years probably or so. I haven't been in up in uh, 8,600 feet in Marble, Colorado, Treasure Mountain Bible Camp, wonderful camp. And whenever I go there in June, most of the time I go in July, but when I go there in June with the fresh snow, many times the avalanche piles are still there in June, the huge snow. In fact, I've probably, you know, uh, uh, most, any time I've been there in June, the avalanche piles were still there and they're huge. I mean, they're over my head, they're melting snow. And uh, as a result of the melting snow, there's a camp, there's a little river they call Mule Creek and it's going um, right through camp and it's raging and it's cold, like 33, 34, I mean, it's cold going right through the center camp, and it's a couple feet high, and it's just raging over the rocks. And basically in June, they don't do this in July because it's, it's, it's to a trickle, it's, it's totally different. They'll get the campers together and they'll say, you know, that trickle, creek over there is extremely dangerous. If you get in that creek, it's going to knock you off the feet, it's going to take the air right out of it because it's cold. It'll carry you down about, about a football field down. There's a hundred foot drop. If that doesn't kill you, there's another hundred foot drop, and we'll pick your body up in marble at the, the lake down there. So basically, we're saying to the kids, here's what you do. If you get in the creek, you will die. But if you stay out of the creek, you will live. Your choice. You know, that's what God's saying to us. <laughs> stay out of the flesh, you'll live. Get in it, and it'll carry you, Father, and you'll do things you never thought you'd do. God says, do not give provision to the flesh, to self at all. I mean, be brutal with it. That's the idea. I, just a couple of illustrations that might help. I remember uh, years ago, my dad telling this story. He was out soul winning, and he was with uh, the converted gangster, George Mensick. And uh, some of you have heard a little bit about George Mensick. He was, to me, he's just... Um, He's larger than life, kind of literally and real. He was a big man, but, uh, uh, but he, was, uh, 
he'd got saved uh, back in uh, Al Capone's uh, era or shortly after Al Capone. He worked for Al Capone. He was second lieutenant in the gang. And uh, he missed the St. Valentine's Day massacre because he got sick that day. And he realized if he hadn't gotten sick, he would have been killed. And uh, he, um, uh, all his life, knew God, God preserved him for the gospel later on. Well, his wife, he married a girl, made it a disaster in the home. There was just a dis, you know, terrible marriage. She didn't know he worked for the mob, and she didn't know where he had money, but he had money all the time. And uh, she uh, started going on the bus to the Marquette Manor Baptist Church at 60th in California on the south side of Chicago uh, with her little daughter who was six years old or five or whatever at the time. I can't remember how old the, da the daughter got saved and then the mom got saved. And, uh, of course, they got burdened for the dad, and he ended up getting saved. Wonderful story. Don't have time to go into it. Some of you have heard the story before. But... Uh, he, uh, that was several decades later, my dad became the pastor of the Market Manor Baptist Church and probably one of the great spiritual leaders in the church was this old converted gangster, George Mensick. He would go all across the Midwest preaching in churches, giving his testimony, but the place he loved to preach the most was prison. He loved preaching in prison. Saw scores of inmates saved and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But anyway, uh, my dad was out soul winning with him one day and that was back in the day, I had suit coats, ties, out soul winning and I knocked on a door, got in. It was a wonderful opportunity. And all of a sudden, my dad said, George Mensick was pulling on a suit coat, saying, Preacher, we got to go. Preacher, we got to get out of here. Preacher, now we got to go. My dad was saying, George, George, this is a great opportunity, George. Pretty soon, George Mensick, that old gangster, headed right out the door. My dad said it threw him so much. It was a great opportunity. The people were wide open for the Gospels. He said, threw him so much. He just had to close down and kind of open and say, can we come back and leave the door open, so to speak. And he went out and he said, when he did, he said, that old converted gangster was out on the lawn and he was pacing back and forth, deeply troubled. He said, George, what's going on? He said, Preacher, did you see it? Didn't you see it? My dad said, see what? He said, there was a deck of cards on the table. George Mensick could not be in the presence of a deck of cards. You say, why? Because he didn't want to give provision to the flesh. Now, for most of us in this room, we can't even identify with that. I believe it was George Mensick. It could be wrong on this, but I do remember hearing someone who had struggled with alcohol said they will never, they will never cross in front of a, a bar. They'll cross the street, go on the other side of the street, cross back, but they will not go in front of a bar. You know why? They don't want to give provision to the flesh. They don't trust themselves. Now, for many of us in this room walking by a bar, we don't even think about it's a bar. I mean, and we weren't raised that way. We're thinking, what's that? You know, we go right by. See, obviously, the application of this will differ depending on your temptations, your experience, your struggles. But God is simply saying here, don't give provision to the flesh. And George Mensick would not want to even be in the presence of a deck of cards. He used to run the gambling rooms there. In Chicago. Remember several years ago I was traveling with one of our team. This is back in the 80s. So one of our team members would be what we call the mechanic and he would pump the gas and he'd go into the gas station and pay for the gas. For you younger Generation Z and Millennials, there used to be a time when you had to go into the gas station to pay for your gas. I know that's unthinkable, but that's what it used to be. And uh, so that's what this young man would do. He'd pump the gas, go in, pay for it, take the credit card receipt, stick it in the bag, throw it underneath the seat. One day he comes to me. His name is John. He's 1988. He says, uh, they used to call me Mr. Van Gelder. I said, Mr. Van Gelder, and he said, um, he said, could somebody else go into the quick stops and buy the gas? I said, sure, John, we can do that. Would you mind telling me why? He said, yeah, he said, um, 
I got saved when I was 20 years old. And he said, before I got saved, he said, I bought a lot of things in quick stops that I'm, not ashamed, that I'm ashamed of. He said, and every time I go into a quick stop, he said, I am tempted. Could you get somebody else to go in there and pay for the grass? So what do you think, Mike? You think, hey, man, buck up, get used to it, man, grit your teeth. Is that, you think that's what I said? I said, no, I'll get somebody else to pay for the gas. You're not going to any quick stops while you're on this team. You know what he's saying? I'm not going to give provision to the flesh. I've said this before. When I go on a quick stop, I'm not tempted. Well, that depends on what temptation is. If it says 99 cent Coca-Cola, I might be tempted. Okay, but anyway. Make not provision for the flesh. Now, why would we do that? Well, there's several reasons, but I want you to understand, really, the real issue is selflessness is not about us. It's about somebody else. And when we begin to stop giving the flesh and self, begin to give that, that's give that our, our attention and begin to move that way and start to focus on others, that's when we begin to live See, the Satan will come along and say, you deserve this. You know, just look at a little bit of stuff. I know it's a little, it's just borderline. It's not a big deal. Or, yeah, you can think a few thoughts. No one will ever know. Your wife won't know the battle in your mind. You can just give in a little bit. Whenever we do that, we're in trouble. Because the problem is when you feed selfishness, then sacrifice and concern for others is gone. And that's what brings life. What brings life is when you and I throw our lives into somebody else. And when we throw ourselves into ourselves, that always brings death. Perhaps this final illustration will help us understand this because every one of us in the room tonight, we have a daily decisions to make. Am I going to give the self and the flesh an inch? Or am I going to say, no, no, no. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I uh, can't remember where I heard this story. But it's a stunning story, and I, I don't know all the details of it, but I'm going to give it as I remember it. There was, there was a, a couple of travelers in an alpine situation. They were traveling along, and they had dressed for the weather, and they got hit with a whiteout. Now, those of us in Wisconsin get the idea of a whiteout, but I don't know that we would understand it like people in the woods were, where you, you lose orientation. I mean, it's a whiteout. You don't know where you are. Your footsteps get covered. It's very dangerous and very precarious. Both of them were mountain men, so they understood the gravity of the situation. The storm just hit them, and they're making their way. There was evidently a destination they were heading to, a little town they knew they had to get to to find refuge from the storm. And as they were going along, they saw a hump in the snow. Being experienced mountain men, they knew exactly what the hump was. It was a fellow traveler. They uh, brushed off the snow. They found the man, and, and they took his pulse, and he was amazingly alive. He hadn't been there very long. And the one traveler said, we can't leave this guy. He's going to die. If we leave him, he has no hope. We, we got to take him with us. And the other guy says, man, if we take that guy, we're going to die for sure. We got to save our own skin, man. No way. The guy says, no, we can't leave him. We got to at least make an effort. The guy says, you do what you got to do, but I got to save my own skin. And off he went. Well, the man just couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't leave the man to die. He says, we both, if I die in the effort, I got to do it. Put the man over his shoulders and and he began, and now it was like just a few steps and his muscles are screaming. 
and excruciating pain. And, and he began to sweat profusely as, as he's every step and just carrying this man. And he began to notice that the warmth from his own body began to go into the man's body that he was carrying. And the man got warmer. He began to come out of the, uh, the, the freezing to death. And his temperature, body temperature went up. And his heart began to beat stronger. And he began, it was like a water bottle, a hot water bottle he was carrying. And even though he was heavy, there was some warmth by him being there. And he was literally sweating as he was just step after step, just agonizing. But he, could, he knew he couldn't stop. He knew he couldn't stop and rest. He knew he had to keep moving. And he was almost to the town when he saw another hump in the snow. So he put the man down, knew it could have to be very quickly. He put the man, brushed off the guy to check. And he checked his pulse real quickly and found the man was dead. Then he went, was well, looking for some identification to find out who the man was so he could tell relatives and tell what happened. And he, he started to look and he realized it was the traveler that had left him the distance before. You know, friends, here it is. The man who lived for himself died. And the man who lived to rescue another lived. What a story. When we lived... When we live to rescue others, that's where real life begins. But when we live for ourselves, you will die. Some of you teenagers out here live for yourself. You game, you look at videos, you're selfish to the core, it's all about you, you trash your parents, you hassle your parents, and I'm simply saying you're dying. You want real life? Stop doing that. Get a call on your life and say, I'm going to start ser serving the Lord. I'm going to start investing in other people. I'm going to start to prepare to do what God wants me to do. And you'll start living. Listen, some of you young men training for the ministry, you may even a point where it's all about me. It's all self-focused. Man, I'm telling you right now, you keep that up, you're going to die. But if you start living to save and rescue others, you'll start living. So what God's trying to help us understand here in Romans chapter 13, you have to be brutal with selfishness. And we live in a culture, I myself included, if it's not, it's so easy to cave in the selfishness, isn't it? But there is no greater reward in all the world when you give your life to rescue someone else. There is joy and there is a fulfillment like you never thought possible. That's why I believe God's given us Romans 13 to challenge us about. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Now, I think what we'll do, let me just ask a question, and then we'll go to this point. How many in this room would say, you know, preacher, and I, and I realize a message like this is the kind of message that sometimes can, can really strike our hearts. Because it's one of those things that, no matter where we are, we can always grow more. I mean, we're all, we recognize until we get to heaven, we're dealing with this flesh thing. We get it. This self thing. We get this. I understand that. So I'm not really trying to get a bunch of hands raised, but I will say this. How many would say, preacher, tonight in a particular way, God's Holy Spirit kind of stopped at my front doorstep and He's dealing with me about some very clear selfishness in my life where I am given the flesh an inch and it's taken me longer, farther than I want to go. Would you just lift your hand as an indication of God's Holy Spirit doing that work in your heart? Thank you very much. You can put your hands down. God, touch me tonight. Here's what I think we ought to do tonight. I know the auditorium's big, but uh, well, let me start with this. Let me just start with this. I'm going to ask our pianist to play. And if you sense God's done a work in your heart where it'll be good to come, I'm going to ask you to come to the altar, but I'm going to ask you to stay there just for a moment. 
and we'll go from there. I'll tell you what to do in just a moment. But if God's touched your heart tonight in a specific way, as the piano plays, I'm going to ask you to come to the front and kneel. Would you do that? Just come to the front, kneel, and talk to God about it. Would you do that? If you're not able to kneel, you can come to the front row and sit if kneeling's difficult. 